Welcome to the Corner Booth with Chris and Barry. I'm Chris Tripoli, hosting with my friend Barry Schuster, the editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. How you doing, Barry? I'm doing great, Chris. Thanks a lot. I'm really looking forward to talking to our guests today. They're going to tell us a story how they went from restaurant dreamer to successful restaurant operator. We're going to find out how they did it and more importantly, why they did it. And I'd like to give a special shout out to companies that support the independent restaurant operator, like today's sponsor, ARF Financial. They support uh, restaurants by providing financing, whether you need operational stability, you're ready to expand, you just want to upgrade equipment or renovate something, and more. They've been doing this since 2001. They've been helping uh, independent operators get money and they're good people. Check them out. They need to keep it going. If you're a listener and you'd like to learn a little bit more about their funding and how it might help you, just go to their website, arffinancial.com. So welcome to the corner booth. Grab a seat, get a drink, and listen in. Chris and I will be talking to a special guest today who has an interesting story, tremendous experience and success as an independent restaurant operator, and we're hoping to get some good pearls of wisdom uh, from his story to share with uh, our listeners who are interested in getting into the business or those of of you who are already restaurant operators and are looking to uh, expand and and try to find some inspiration to uh, take your business to the next level. So what I'd love to do now is have our listeners meet Brooks Bassler. He is the president. He's the operating officer of of what we uh, like to consider our favorite Tex Orleans concept called BB's Cafe. Brooks, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the Corner Booth. Thanks for having me. So maybe you could uh, tell the listeners a little bit about your concept uh, because it's been a phenomenal success. We've watched and uh, and wonder. Uh, and if you could tell them just a little bit about how you would want to describe the concept and who the current customer is. Absolutely. Uh, we became known as the home of Tex Orleans Cooking, And as far as I know, the only Tex Orleans restaurant um, that I know of. And really, I stumbled upon uh, the brand and the, and the idea because when we opened up, I, I simply wanted to be a late night po' boy shop uh, right on the best corner in Houston on Montrose and Westheimer. And, and that was how we started a 12 item menu serving po' boys and gumbo. And, and literally that was it. And I didn't really think too much at the time about the Texas influence into the brand of a po' boy shop, but it happened just by circumstance of the menu having items like fajita beef and queso, um, and fajita chicken and queso, a lot of avocado and jalapeno and, and things like that that are very Tex-Mex driven and oriented. And a food critic said, wow, this is Tex-Cajun uh, food. And um, we kind of took that Tex-Cajun a step further because Cajun food and New Orleans food are, are two different things. And a po' boy shop is really Orleans, much more so than Cajun. So we took and ran and then said, you know what, we're Tex-Orleans. And we went from a, a 12-item po' boy shop into a 54-item scratch-made uh, menu that's really um, the basis and the backbone of our offerings. Is, is, is We're a seafood-driven concept. Absolutely. And so that means, so we've started then with a, what was a limited menu, late night customer profile po' boy shop in a cool, active part of town to what is now a full service yep. lunch dinner, seven days a week, 50 item plus uh, casual restaurant. That's correct. Fantastic. Yeah. So along the way, <clears throat> how has um, how did that first unit create the basis for what is now an, an expanding chain? It was an incubator. Um, it's the way I looked at it. My background was catering. 
Um, so I knew I could cater out the gate and, and keep us afloat with the catering um, for at least some amount of time. I wasn't sure how long. It ended up being, it took us about really two years to really start saying, oh, wow, this is working and we're making money. Um, whereas the first, you know, the first 24 months, I was just running parties and catering and delivering food and constantly making changes to the menu. I mean, we were, we were going through a new menu every two weeks. Um, and so really, uh, from listening to our customers and um, pressing the envelope on R&D and, and, and making my routine visits down to New Orleans, the menu started slowly evolving. You know, it was 12 items and it was 15 and it was 17 and then it was 25. And we just kept pressing the envelope on additional offerings because it was selling and our headcounts were increasing. So really, really just listening listen to our customers and, and having fun back there because in the restaurant, my favorite part of it is the R&D aspect. So you're really oriented around the, uh, the culinary aspect of your concept. Of course, this is a food business. Um, what about the rest of the, the business, the ambience, the culture? The other things that, that bring your guests into the restaurant, how's that all integrated with this this uh, this concept that you have in a culinary fashion, uh, which is this, this Tex Orleans uh, uh, type of approach? You know, um, when you're starting out, you're not thinking about things like culture um, and branding. It's just more of, I, I got to pay bills and, and figure out how to make this work. Right. Um, and then when you're able to get freed up to actually start working on the business, you can start thinking about things like culture and branding. Um, you know, ours, ours started with something as silly as, is uh, making sure that the names of our menu items were, would make someone ask a question about why, like, why'd you name it that? You know, it's not a shrimp po' boy. It's a bedtime of the bayou. So what, give me some, give me some examples of some of these names that you come up with. Yeah. So, um, you know, again, we, we take, we catered late night. So out the gate, we, you know, we were like, Hey, we're gonna have some fun names. So our midnight masterpiece, um, is our roast beef debris po' boy. Mm-hmm. Um, our bedtime in the bayou is our fried shrimp po' boy. Our rock out the knockout is our fried catfish po' boy. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where the base of the brand is saying, Hey, look, we're not gonna take ourselves too serious here. We're gonna have fun. We're gonna keep it casual. And we're going to spark the imagination of our customers. See, and, and Barry, what I'm hearing here is just a great principle that all small independent operators need to abide by. And that's the closer they stay to what the customers are doing, uh, what the customers are eating. That's how the customers talk to us. And the smartest operators are the ones that are the closest to the customer. So I love that uh, about your concept, Brooks, is you did that right from the gate. The more you were hearing, the more you saw the patterns, the more you were able to grow and adjust. Uh, that's a, a very good lesson for the listeners to make note of. Thank you. And um, one of the things that, uh, that I find interesting and, and impressive, um, you're, you're a relatively young guy, um, and uh, I guess we'll call you a millennial, uh, not to put you in a box, but um, generationally. And, and so you, in my way of thinking, you probably have a kind of special insight into your guest base, which... Frankly, right now, uh, folks your age are the predominant dining consumer. Is there something that you can tell our listeners about, you know, what um, motivates and, and, uh, and resonates with, with that, that demographic that might be valuable to them? Because I think that's uh, important to keep your eyes on. Or um, is it just kind of coming naturally and organically? Yeah, you know, my advice would be um, not to fight the whole, the world we live in with the digital age. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that every person coming into our restaurant is an expert. 
And um, that's just the reality of the world we live in in serving uh, the general public is they are an expert um, and you're not going to convince them otherwise. You know, so really making sure that you're doing everything possible to listen to them and giving your customers a voice, I highly recommend. I mean, we're we're incredibly active on responding any way we can. You know, obviously face to face as much as often, but uh, really, you know, people are behind their phones, behind their computers these days, and um, you got to respond quickly um, to the good, the bad, and the ugly. Is that engagement really important part of uh, building the repeat customer? Which I, I guess we can all agree that without the repeat customer, it's hard to keep your doors open. That's right. Yeah, engagement's everything. You know, so it starts from the second they walk in to you know, and, and then after they leave, and how they respond to their experience um, because. They tell people, you know, and now they tell people uh, via the Internet or a review platform or one of your social media platforms. So cost control, I mean, obviously, that's something you think a lot about in terms of inventory and your labor management. Um, you know, now with 10 units, uh, that just has to become just more and more complex. Uh, you know, what are your approaches in terms of your analysis, your financial analysis, your purchasing, your labor scheduling? I know I'm asking a lot, but yeah. um, it's got to be something that keeps you up at night sometimes. <laughs> it's becoming more and more uh, it's a bigger role now than it was before, that's for sure for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've, we've gotten pretty good at streamlining some back office procedures so we can get quick, accurate data, first and foremost. Um, we've also... We know the pains of, of integrating technology mm-hmm. when it comes to cost control, and, and that's a very troublesome process. You know, they're going to make you think it's easy when they're selling you this software, but it's anything but easy. And um, you know, we've been able to have a lot of success with it, but at the end of the day, um, it took a very high-level individual to put that all together and make all your technology touch points talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've done it, and it, we've, we're able to know how much money we are losing, essentially, the exact mm-hmm. leakage and where it's coming from. And then once you drill down on that and you start asking questions, um, most of the time it goes away. Do you have dashboard analytics at play, or is this all done by brute force? Uh, dashboard analytics, both. Mm-hmm. both. Definitely dashboard analytics, you know, with our point of sale and our inventory platform and our scheduling platform that we use. Um, we're able to see very accurate data um, on that. But the brute force piece, um, without that, we wouldn't have been able to muscle through that, I mean, arguably a 12 to 14-month setup period of getting it to where it needed to be. Chris, when your experience with, uh, you know, dealing with you know, fast growth concepts like this, uh, um, where are some of the, the places where operators stumble um, going from 1 to 10 and, gosh, so few years there um there's a lot of areas where for potential landmines you know that growing concepts need to be aware of but typically it starts with people it starts with people it's still a people business and so um i wish i was the one that coined the phrase but i didn't but i heard it long ago that you know successful concepts can only grow as fast as you can properly operate and that's very, very true. So uh, maybe, Brooks, you could tell us a little bit about how your growth model went from one to two to three, how you developed the bench strength, yep. you know, and how you keep the bench strength uh, in order to support the 10 units you have now. 
Yeah, that's um, it's incredibly challenging piece of the puzzle to figure out. I wish I could sit here and tell you that I got it figured out, but <laughs> it's, well, we're far from it. Um, you, you know, if I had it to do all over again, um, I would have probably attacked my training a little different. Um, I would have started with the manager and training program before anything else. Uh, and um, everybody makes, most people make the mistake of starting with their frontline employee first. I would have done it the other way, personally, because yes. um, everyone uh, is so easy to underestimate the value that a really good manager provides. But a really good manager uh, really makes most of the frontline employee issues go away for you to where you don't have to deal with them. On the contrary, um, a bad manager will amplify the frontline employees to where all of a sudden you're dealing with uh, issues in the frontline and management at the same time. You know, so I, I would definitely attack the training differently, started with the MIT program. Um, and in terms of, of how do you keep them and, and how do you find them? Um, I mean, it's, it's simple. You got, you got to make sure you're, you're, you're paying them the right amount of money, what they're worth. Okay. So you need to know what the market is out there for, for a good, for a good GM. Gotcha. You know, I, I mean, uh, those of us with experience can probably all agree the most important position in the restaurant is a general manager. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so you got to know which competition's paying. Can you pay more? Do it. Um, and, uh, you know, love them really, you know, let them know you love them. That's, uh, you know, Barry, that's something that I know we spend a lot of time talking about is, uh, is how can you show the love, um, in addition to liking the job and liking the compensation, if I'm a manager at BB's, then how do I feel like I connect, you know, how do you, uh, engage mm -hmm. uh, and, um, how does that process work so that I feel like. I belong. Right. Um, I think it starts with a consistent review process. Okay. Uh, that way you're setting the tone early. You know, if you have a new manager coming from the outside, you, you need to just sit down with them face to face six weeks after they start at, at the latest. Okay. And saying, hey, you know, these are things I'm seeing that you're doing really good at. And, um, you know, these are the areas where we need to work on. That way you're setting a, a culture out the gate of, hey, I'm going to be direct with you. But at the same time, you're going to get to know me on an emotional level. And you're going to get to know a lot about me outside of BBs, you know, so uh, making sure, you know, the things they do outside of the job is important to me. Um, what's important to them outside of work, you know, is important to me and knowing these things, but also giving them real time, tough feedback. Yeah. Um, people want to hear it. I mean, mo for the most part, you know, they want to know how they can get better. And if you're not telling them things like, look, man, you're, you're, the problem is, is you're just cocky. No one likes you. Um, they're not going to get better. Yeah. You know, and a lot of it comes down to just personality styles, but people appreciate it when you're direct with them, as long as you're beginning and ending it with some emotional stuff about all the stuff they're doing great. Gotcha. That's true. So those are those two principles that the successful people seem to do. Uh, and that is clarity. Sounds like you're, you're wanting to be very, very clear. And then there's that consistent open communication. Somebody right. always knows where they stand. It's amazing. I think people do actually like to, they, they, they seem to react better when there's a certain uh, element of structure. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, as long as you're not beating them up um, and you're delivering a professional uplifting manner, I mean, it, it's a huge, it's a small activity with a, with a huge reward. Are there any advantages from your perspective in terms of growing like you have 
in terms of your labor and labor scheduling, I guess something that comes to mind, uh, you know, you have uh, employees at, at different units and, and maybe can you move them around from different units where you need them? Is there some cross-pollination that goes on that you got one unit that's really doing well and other units maybe you'd like things improved and you, and you, you kind of kind of introduce some of the culture of one unit to the next? Is, uh, if you follow what I'm saying. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, yes, to answer your question, there's a huge advantage to that. Um, do we do a lot of it when needed? Uh, we absolutely, we absolutely do. You know, the, um, we got, you just, unfortunately in Texas, you have to keep your eye on the overtime laws and mm -hmm. make sure that you're following that. It's very easy to fall in that trap sure. to where they're working two, three locations. You can't keep up with it. So, um, that's an administrative task that you got to have buttoned up before you do any, any of that. Um, which I think is a very, um, it's a, it's, a, it's a trap for, for small operators who are getting started. Um, you know, in terms of what it add, in terms of the value add it can do, I think it's, it's incredible. I, I've seen it to where I've had struggling kitchens to where, you know, we couldn't meet the basics of our standards of serving consistent hot food. And, um, you know, we'd re-inject some, some tender blood in there for a stint, you know, two months, three months. And all of a sudden the culture would change back there because the, these, these kit cooks would see how important it is to um, one of our other locations cooks has been with us for five, six years and it's infectious, you know? And so I've seen it work very, very, very favorable in our kitchen, uh, more so than our front of house. Mm -hmm. Now you, um, you have a business education. Um, you've done exceptionally well in, in this business. Uh, so uh, I imagine you could have applied those, those skills and acumen um, personality almost in any industry. And now we're, you, you, you decide to apply your skills and your interest in the restaurant business, which let's, let's face it, it's, it's a challenging business. The margins aren't great. Um, there are a lot of moving parts. Um, what, what attracted you to going in that direction rather than, you know, going to work for a Fortune 500 company and, and working your way up the food chain there? You know, I started waiting tables when I was 18, and uh, to be honest with you, other than having some summer odd jobs before then, I haven't done anything else. Mm -hmm. um, so I really didn't know anything else, and every time I went to work, um, I enjoyed it. It was just I looked forward to going to work, and I love the after-work camaraderie of your early days when you could go out and have fun and not have to worry about anything. Um, you know, but just really the energy of the business kind of sucked me into it young. Um, to where when I graduated college, I just didn't even think twice. I just wanted to keep doing what I was doing, which was waiting tables and bartending and uh, try to figure it out from there. Um, and then when I got into the management side of it, I started seeing the, the, the nuts and bolts of the, the foundation of operations and a small dose to the, the numbers piece of it. Um, and I just thought, you know, I could do this on my own. And you have experience, as you said, uh, working in restaurants for quite a number of years, and then you have um, formal education in hospitality management from University of Houston, if I'm correct, um, you know, are both equally important. Uh, did you get a lot out of uh, the formal education, or do you kind of fall back on you know, what you've learned in the trenches? For me, it's equally important. I think each by each, it's a case-by-case -case basis. I, was, I, was actually, I actually got a degree in business entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. Um, from the University of Houston. Um, a lot of people do think I went to the HRM program there, but yeah. I did not. Excuse so me. Uh, That's okay. Um, so my dose that I had, I thought I had a huge competitive advantage on the basics of, of a balance sheet and a profit and loss. Mm -hmm. 
and how to communicate, you know, because that the school over there just taught me so much about that to where I was, I had way more knowledge than most 26 year olds at the time when I was opening up my business um, ever dreamed of having. Can you, can you talk to our listeners about the importance of really being on top of your numbers and analyzing your financial statements? I, I've got to believe you have a, uh, some thoughts on that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you, you, it, it's, it's cliche, but you got to watch every single penny going out, coming in. Um, you know, you're going to deal with theft. It's going to happen. It's just how quick can you find um, the leakage walking out through theft? You've got to be able to, you know, your two big ones. I mean, your labor, um, your labor and your cost of goods sold. I mean, if you can't, if you can't manage those, you have no chance of of making money whatsoever. I mean, because it, and those can get out of hand on you quick. Yeah. yeah. So, Chris, um, you know, when you're consulting to new operators and they're going into this, and maybe they're more in love with food than management and finance. Uh, um, you know, how do you get folks up to speed on these type of things? Uh, Brooks had the advantage of, uh, and, the, and the foresight and wisdom to, you know, to, to develop his education in this area. Um, but I can imagine that you've seen a lot of new operators come on board and you kind of a little bit worried about their ability to stay on top of every penny like Brooks has. And man, that seems to be a, a recipe for uh, not a very long lifespan in this business. Well, there's no doubt. Uh, yeah, when you're when you're if you're a listener that's new to the business or you're really, really ready to take that jump and open up for the first time, it is real important to know right from the get go that just as important as the idea, the concept, the quality of the food is your ability to manage. So systems and procedures are important. So when you're to answer your question, when we were you know working with people, that's the first thing we wanted to make clear is that it's it's a level playing field and they're all equally important. So, yes, on the creative, yes, on the good food, the presentation and the um, and the portioning and the taste, but we can't stop there. We need to immediately get into item costing, running inventory, preparation management. Um, and ordering based on par levels. And so if that's new to them, and for many people it is, then that becomes a teaching opportunity. Uh, we've got to uh, develop those uh, processes so they realize that this is a daily business, and then the daily business turns into weekly goals, weekly inventories, ordering off of par, daily prep lists, and so that's how you can manage uh, and understand your cost. And that's how you catch, like Brooks was pointing to, when there's an error. If there's waste, if there's pilferage, if there's overportioning, mm -hmm. it's going to happen. It's a human business. But but the smart guys catch it quick. Uh, we can't wait to May 15th anymore to learn about what happened in April. That's what the P&L tells us. But operators, like I bet Brooks will speak to, <clears throat> no longer look at the P&L as information. They really look at the P&L as confirmation. Uh, it's confirmation of what you know during that previous month because operators today need to operate by the week. And they're looking at the labor, they're looking at cost of sales, they're managing their revenue. And so if you manage by the week, then most more than likely when the P&L comes out 10, 12 days later, it confirms mm -hmm. confirms right where you are. It's an accurate picture. Yeah, that's right. I mean, no, you want to avoid the surprises. Yeah, yeah. there's enough surprises. There are enough of them on the road. Yeah, they, they got a lot of them, you know. And I like to tell my GMs when we have our weekly call, and I remind them this probably every other week, you know, one bad day will ruin the week, and one bad week will ruin your period. Um, so if you're not just drilling in on it on the daily at the store level, um, it can get away from you quick. Very true. It's a, it's a daily business. And too many times people that come to our business from others, 
they'll understand things like financial planning and annual budget, but we've got to work with them to understand that in order to implement that, you break your annual plan into quarterly plans, you break your quarterly plan into monthly goals, but then those monthly goals turn into weekly objectives. So if I'm a manager on shift, say on Wednesday, then I know how my Wednesday night fits in with that week. And, you know, week by week, we make it work. That's right. You know, in, in uh, terms of multi-unit growth, like you've experienced, I mean, I guess there's two schools of thought. You know, old school is you do a cookie cutter, got the same space, same menu, same concept, same everything, and that way you can just transfer your operating manual from one to the next. But then I'm seeing a lot of uh, newer operators, you know, they're doing multi-unit growth, and there's similarities between their concepts maybe in terms of the style of service and so forth, but it's not so cookie cutter. Um, what's been your philosophy, and um, as a second question for you to consider, is is the growth been something that's where I would say the the concept or the or your business is kind of taken on a life of its own, or did you have this grand vision where you're basically creating um, Garden of Eden on graph paper and you got it all figured out? Um, I'm hearing a lot of new operators saying, you know what, uh, my my businesses seem to have a life of its own. I'm just going to follow it along. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely more in that category. Um, you know, we've done a, a great job here in Houston of taking over second generation restaurants um, and getting them open for probably a third uh, to maybe half the price of, of what, you know, you would go into a cold, dark shell and, and build um, basically new, you know, probably a quarter of the price of a new build, actually, of a, of a ground up. Um, so that, that creates a lot of challenges um, from operations, uh, you know, especially for ops guys, because like, I'm not a, I'm not an op guy, um, but ops guys are like, they're, they're, they want to, they're pretty black and white folks, you know, so it, it challenges your ops team a little bit because they like to have things, you know, consistent as, as much as possible. Uh, so get through that hurdle um, is, is something that's just became part of our culture. Our guys know. They know what time it is. They know what they're going to deal with. Um, but we love the fact that we can get in cheap and we can make each building our own in a different way. You know, if you go into our locations, they all look different from the curb pill. Um they all look different from the inside in terms of placement. But you know when you walk into our store that's a BB's just from the way the walls look, the art that we have, um, typically what's behind the bar. Um, and we just take every little chance from the, the French doors we use, the tables we use to, you know, using the same artists every year for our wall decor, um, the same paint themes. I mean, you know it's a BB's, mm -hmm. you know. So I think that's a good trade-off for us. and and. You know, people are over here going, wait, 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 how much did you spend to get this store open? And how, how much is it making? That's that's impossible, you know, but no, it's not. Not if you can find, if you have a good ops team that you can find what you feel to be um, a good location and you turn it around for um, a third of the price of what it would cost to do new. I think it's um, a good recipe. For, it's been a great recipe for us. So can you amplify on that for our listeners on how <clears throat> you're defining trade dress? Like what, what are the specific things that you might consider sacred cows that define the BB's brand that you have to have the same? And then what are the items that obviously, like you described, can be very flexible depending upon what neighborhood you're in? Yeah, yeah. I think the, the, the items that have to be um, absolutely set in stone for, for us is, you know, there's kind of there's two dimensions here. There's an internal and an external um, trade dress that, that I, I at least I think that way. Um, internal, um, I mean, the basics, obviously, uniform, wall decor, 
um, you know, the, the language we use in the stores on how we communicate to guests, um, you know, plateware, um, things like that. And of course the internal marketing promotions, gotcha. um, and external, um, you know, is obviously how we talk to the customer in the open public, which is huge right now. Um, so if you go and you look at our social media pages and you look at the language we use, it's very consistent. Um, very consistent. We're using the same words. We, mm-hmm. we respond to customers in the same manner, whether it's a good or a poor experience. And we have this kind of, in this own language we've developed really that's unique to us and the customers know that and, and um, they respect it and it's a draw. So logo, <clears throat> um, color scheme, design, signage, obviously yeah, lo- stays the same. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the signage package is the identical. Gotcha. You know, at every every location we have, obviously our logo is our logo, but we're we're a proponent of just a really bright, open face neons. Um, and then internal, you know, paint colors, the size of French doors we use, um, and the artwork is is really the consistencies of our internal, you know, brand and the external stuff is just our marketing Perfect. Uh, lingo that we've developed. So that allows you to be flexible on size, flow, That's placement right. of units, you know, and it's obviously served you well. Yep. You know, when you talk about location and you say a good location, I'm not sure good location means the same thing to everyone. And one thing that comes to mind is, of course, the craft breweries you're probably familiar with. They'll come in on some in some industrial area that's kind of tired and they'll have a brew pub and particularly younger uh, patrons will come out there. They don't care where they're going as long as it's a good experience. What's a good location now? Um, can you do a little bit... Um, Build it and they will come now that your brand is established where you can maybe go someplace where the rent factor is lower um, and maybe it's not the, uh, uh, you know, the, the busiest intersection in town, but but you can get your uh, guests to come out there because they're they want they're seeking something in particular from you. That's right. You know, um, it's a numbers business, you know, mm-hmm. so if the numbers work, I mean, we're not trying to hit a home run on every deal. I mean, we're totally happy with a um, you know a slide and double. I mean, heck, even a stand up single at times is good if, mm-hmm. if, the, if the startup price is right of getting the store open. Um, you know, so for us, we kind of back into it. Um, what's it going to cost to get open? What, what kind of money can this thing spit off? Um, and then from there, you know, uh, if it's a B minus location, um, but the numbers make sense, we'll jump on it. Especially here locally in our own backyard, we can do that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, now if we get out of town and, and we're going to, you know, we're going to open our first store out of town, we're going to go in and, you know, try to find that power location and pay up for it sure. because the brand's not known. But in our backyard, I mean, we have a, we have a, a pretty darn good brand. We can get away with B minus locations, you know, um, because for two reasons. One, the numbers, you know, the numbers make sense. Mm-hmm. We don't have to come out hitting a triple or a home run. We can hit a double or a single. Everybody's happy. Um, you know, and, and the brand of, of just saying, Hey, um, wow, BB's open up around the corner from us. I used to go to this store. I'm gonna go to this one. Now it's, it's closer. Um, so we've been able to benefit from that and have leveraged some brand power locally. So now that you have a brand that's known, um, would it be safe to say that, you know, some landlords are saying, Hey, listen, we'd like to get you in here because you might be an anchor for some other businesses. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's amazing when you, um, uh, the more the more successful you become, how uh, how much more attention you get from uh, the landlords. So well, walk us through that storyline. I think uh, how the growth worked because 
I, I'm sure it's a bit more of a struggle to find the sites, to raise the funds, to go from one to two to three. We could walk us through how that worked because I know the more recent years it's been rapid and it has been perhaps a little easier to find the locations, easier mm -hmm. to deal with the landlords. I doubt it was always that way. Right. So, so walk us through how those early years of expansion worked. Yeah, it's tough. You know, you don't have much of a balance sheet to show for, a personal financial statement to show for. So uh, you're going on you is what you're, you're, you're basing your growth on you, essentially. Um, for us, it was a slow go out the gate. I mean, we opened the first location and I opened it with my life savings and SBA loan. Um, and I was able to do that for the first three locations that were really close to each other. You know, if you look at our Montrose location, we go to Heights. I mean, that's less than two miles apart. Um, and then if you go to from, from our first location to our third location, it's less than a mile and a half apart. So they're close. It's almost I can look at it as one location in a sense um, of that. And, and they were small landlords. So they weren't going to ask the hard questions or require certain things that a larger landlord uh, would require because they, they liked me and this is a people business and generally people invest in uh, people that they like. Um, so I think my personality had some leverage early on with landlords. Um, and, uh, you know, then once we started growing um, at location four through 10, um, it started getting a little easier okay. to, to pluck sites and to negotiate. Um, you know, whereas the first three is just like, uh, I don't have much power here other than, hey, I'm a pretty likable guy. Uh, they like my food. They come in. Um, sure, we'll do a deal with Brooks. Um, but I didn't have much, to, you know, leveraging power. But, you know, I got to the fourth location, got a little bit easier. Um, and, and then they just kind of kept getting easier. And I was able to keep, you know, I was able to keep getting a little more leverage on the landlords than before to where I could sign something to where uh, at the end of the day, if, uh, God forbid it didn't work out, it wasn't going to kill me. And how did the financial, financial model work as you raise funds for that expansion? Was it um, predominantly the same or did you change the model as you grew to raise money? Yeah, so we've, um, you know, as I mentioned, the first three were just me and, and bank loans and, and cash flow and life savings type of stuff. A little help from family. Um, on location four, we started um, raising money because I wanted to grow and I didn't have any money. So um, there was really only one thing to do, and I was leveraged out as well. So I couldn't really get more debt that I was comfortable taking on um, on terms. So we went out and raised cash. And essentially, um, the structure um, for, I guess, locations, uh, what, four through um, nine, um, were all similar to where we go out, we'd raise whatever the location costs, you know, our fourth location, we we'll would get it open in this less... With as cheap as three hundred fifty thousand dollars, which is incredible. Um, so we went out, raised three hundred fifty thousand dollars, and I give up out the gate seventy five percent to this limited partner group. I'm, I'm the general partner; I have full control of daily ops. And then when we pay them back through cash flow, it flipped to uh, seventy five me, twenty five the limited partner group for per perpetuity. Um, and in a nutshell, with a few changes um, along the way from locations four through nine. Um, that was the structure that we followed, um, close to that, right? And then, then we're like, oh, wow, um, we're at 10 now. And this part of the thing has been awesome. It's been great, um, you know, but it's been a really good investment, you know, uh, really good for, for some of these guys. It's just the ROIs we're spitting out on them were just unheard of. So I'm like, 
kind of switched my gears a little bit on 10 and said, kind of went back to how we did it out the gate where we just did it all internally. So it's, um, it's been a mix of everything. That's, I think that's very important to make note of for listeners is that there seems to be success in that when it's time to go raise capital to do that, um, that flip of distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I've heard uh, how that seems to be a win-win for both sides. It's, it's like everyone's on the same team now. Right. The, you know, the operator who's the general partner obviously wants to store to open well, run good numbers, pay down debt quickly. Because then the distribution flips. That's right. The investors like that because they feel like, hey, listen, we know we, we've invested in something where the guy's going to work really hard, really quick, so we get our money back fast. That's right. So I'm glad that's worked out well for you. Thank you. Brooks, uh, any take on the D word delivery? Is it uh, something on the horizon, something you're working with now? Or um, is it even relevant to what you're doing? A lot of people are talking about it, and you know, people want their... Uh, Text Cajun and Netflix. Um, yeah. What's your thoughts on all that? <laughs> I am so back and forth on it. Um, I, I think I'm probably like most operators to where we don't know. You know, we don't know what what where it's going to go or or what we need to do about it. So rather than fighting it, we're kind of joining it um, reluctantly. With at that is saying, okay, well, um, you know, at the end of the day, we want to increase our top of line sales, and um, that's an easy way to do it. Um, but all of a sudden you're paying, you know, 10 to, to 20% on the order. And sometimes with some of the vendors, it's higher. We, we don't deal with those, but, um, and, and you're losing some quality control along the way. And, um, is it worth it? The other question I have for you on that line, and if you can uh, uh, crack this code, I'll be ever grateful. Uh, are you figuring out if this is actually building incremental sales or is it cannibalizing dine-in? <laughs> that's a good uh, that's a point. great question and i think about it all <laughs> i'm waiting the, for your answer with bated well, breath <laughs> all the time um <laughs> you know I, i'm gonna go with the first i think it does it, i think you do get some incremental sales from it but i i, I just it, you just can't put a dollar on it you know no, it's uh it's 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 a point that I think everyone's going to study further because I think it's a little too new for us to have a clear, uh, a clear definitive answer to that. I have noticed so far a little bit of each. I mean, I have had concepts tell us that they see that they're holding revenue, but there has been that revenue shift. They could actually get by with slightly smaller dining rooms mm-hmm. because their delivery through third-party delivery has added so much out the door. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so anyway, it is, it's, it's going to be something, you know what, uh, that it, we'll be watching carefully. Yeah, it's it's interesting and it's hard. I mean, I mean, you look at these guys that are doing this and, I mean, they're not making money. <laughs> they're not making money. So what does that tell you? I mean, it's like they're the Uber of, you know, they're these great technology companies that don't make money. I mean, how long can they keep doing that? I don't know. I think they're all hoping to be Amazon or something, to be able mm-hmm. to be really, really big one day, even though they struggled in really didn't make money for years, but I, uh, I don't know either. I just know that uh, from a restaurant point of view, we see that we not, uh, yeah. where you almost feel boxed in that if we're not Grubhubbing, if we're not favoring, if we're not, mm-hmm. you know, Uber delivering, we might be missing on something, but mm-hmm. those companies do have a little ways to go to make that model work. That's right. But it, it sounds like there is some demand for delivery from your concept. Yeah, there's, yeah, we do a decent amount. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we're not even, I mean, you know, we're not, our food doesn't necessarily deliver that great. I mean, it's po' boys, you yeah. know, I mean, um, you're always a little nervous when you're sending your food out. Um, it's like, how long is it going to take till it gets there and they eat it? 
Um, that's something that's you can't control, yeah. you know, uh, they, they, they stacking orders here, what's going on, you know, so you, you lose your quality control. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it's kind of that, going back to that point where the more we watch customer profiles and follow their buying habits, it's just sort of where they're taking us. I mean, we started with the to-go, car side pickup was like a next step. It's almost now just the next step of convenience. Why can't I just order from this company that I order everything else from that comes to my house? Right. So, you know, yeah. so I think that's why it's here with us. You know, and on that, on that note, um, you know, because the demographic and, and because people can get things online and you know my kids are digital natives and so they're very comfortable with that but um you got to get people in your restaurant um if you have a dine-in service and there's got to be a great guest experience and and um, my argument is that the as good as the food is and i'm sure your food is awesome it, it takes more than just good food to get people in there what what's the what's the magic sauce as far as the guest experience i think you hit the nail on the head just i mean it's just quality and um, now that's very hard to achieve. Mm -hmm. And that's what um, a lot of folks fail to realize is how difficult that is to achieve. I mean, we, you know, I mean, we got 10 locations and heck man, when we have a hard time selling certain consistent hot French fries, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, that's just the reality of managing people. Um, but it goes back to, to everything related to guest experience, which is quality. I mean, the food and the service has gotta be on point. And if there's a little personality in between, um, I think you got a really good chance. I know we have a great chance of getting them back because if our food's done right, it's as good as any, it's as good as anywhere. Do you have bar business there? Yes, we do. Yeah, our, our blended, we probably run about 20% bar mix company wide. Mm -hmm. Seeing more people dining uh, at the bar? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Singles that just come in, want to get a quick meal, have a drink, get on with the business. Mm -hmm. Yep. Is there anything you're doing? Um, at the at the bar, the tie in with your concept in terms of uh, specialty craft uh, beers, maybe specialty mm -hmm. craft cocktails that you know you're using to kind of tie in with uh, the 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 cuisine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have a unique craft made cocktail list that has some very uh, some of the most pure New Orleans style cocktails you can get. Um, you know, our beer selection as well. We got a couple of craft Louisiana brews, of course, the Texas craft guys. Um, you know, the main, the, the, the big folks, cause I mean, they're just coming at you from every direction right now in the craft brew craze. So it's kind of hard to uh, decipher on sure. what's what on that, but it, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We, we get aggressive with it. We have some, we have a great happy hour we do every day, Monday or, or five days a week, you know, from three to six thirty, we call it the voodoo half hour, you know, mm -hmm. voodoo in New Orleans kind of goes hand in hand. We um, put some great deals out there for folks. Anything related to food trucks uh, to you know get your brand out there to the craft brewers who don't have their own food service or is that you know is that taking a direction that you're just not you know yeah we're relevant? I'm I'm not too concerned about that right mm -hmm. um, it's it's really not on my radar I'm I'm more um, I'm kind of looking a little more I guess you could say globally on you know, we want to increase our sales. Mm -hmm. Um, but we don't want to do it through food trucks. We'd rather do it through increasing those same store sales inside the four walls because that's when you get that that volume. And and when you get that that the power of volume, there's just nothing like it. I mean, all of a sudden the profits just start soaring. So now you're at this place. Um, what is what's the the grand scheme for growth? I'm I'm sure you don't want to let you know let, yeah. let everybody know what you're planning to do because you have competition. But you know, uh, are you talking about? Uh, Continuous corporate ownership? Is there is this something that could be franchised? Uh, you know, what what do you is the natural next phase? You know, in five years. 
You know, um, kind of goes in line with what you said earlier. With do do we have a have we ever had a, a, a organized growth plan? Kind of. You know, no, mm-hmm. um, no, we haven't. It's just been simple as. Um, Am I looking for locations throughout from from when we opened, or so, let's just say five and a half six years ago until now? Mm-hmm. Um, and if I was looking for locations, it means we're gonna we're gonna grow. Mm-hmm. You know, am I looking for a location today? No, um, we, we are not looking for real estate right now. Um, we are kind of at a point where we're we're kind of going to pull back the reins just a hair, and um, you know, focus on our training. What are your roles and responsibilities like today, and how different is that from you know where you started? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm the gatekeeper of the culture. Is my primary role is is making sure that our culture is strong. Um, restaurants with strong cultures are going to take care of themselves. They're going to be successful. Restaurants with bad cultures, the other the other, the other will happen. And I see it. You know, yes. I see it in our tent. Um, so my, my role, my, my role is the gatekeeper of the culture and, um, everything with our culture is surrounding quality. So I'm constantly challenging, um, everything that has to do with the quality of our food, our service and our guest experience. And if it's not right, we're going to challenge it. We're going to change it. And what kind of support, uh, staff level is required for an independent company at this level now? Um, say directors yeah. or department heads, et cetera, that you need in order to help implement Absolutely. the culture. Uh, so we have a chief brand officer. Um, she's over everything, look and feel, uh, marketing, um, community involvement, uh, trade dress stuff, uh, things like that. Um, of course, social media. And then I have a vice president and his um, accountability is people development. And, you know, he's really owning that, that, that total labor line on our profit loss state. And that's, that's his baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, got, I have a, a vice president of purchasing and, um, you know, product development. And his baby is really managing that cost of goods sold number and making sure that stays in line, but also sure. keeping us fresh, coming to the table with new ideas on food, um, taking a lot of ownership in back of house operations. And then um, below the below that team of folks, it's the GM level, um, you know, straight to the GM level, and and um, you know, and then we have a, a small back office as well. And then I think you have uh, really profited by having a sort of a, a mentorship or a advisor group unofficially that you put together. Sure. Um, how long ago did that start? How does that help you? What do you use it for? Yeah, I mean, you know, it started. Um, it started long before I was open in business. I was just always a very curious person. And um, I loved uh, talking to people that were smarter than me. So I was able to develop some relationships early on. Uh, my parents are entrepreneurs as well. So they've been my mentor since day one. And I've always been involved in, in the business in, in some shape, form, or fashion. Uh, great sounding board. Um, and then, <clears throat> you know, before I opened uh, my first one, I really I, I went out to a really trusted, uh, he was really, wasn't really a mentor at the time, he was a professor of mine. And I went out and I said, hey Ken, um, you know, this is my business plan, I'm, I'm, I'm punching holes in it, or I got some feedback from my parents, I'd really love your feedback on it. And um, he provided some great feedback, you know. And so he and I hit it off the gate because he knew I was, um, you know, receptive to change and, you know, wouldn't take his feedback personal. He's very direct, um, kind of kind of mentor, he just kind of tells you how it is, which I, I love. Uh, having mentors that um, aren't yes men, you know, that they, they, they tell you the, you know, the ugly. You know? Mm-hmm. I mean, sure. And that's what I want to hear. I want to hear what's wrong, not what we're doing right. <clears throat> um, and so th- it started very informal, still is. Um, and and that, that 
kind of informal, um, this kind of an informal board really has grown over the years as we've grown and, and I've never missed an opportunity to reach out to people that have been there, done that, and, and can hopefully identify some pitfalls, um, you know, before I run into them. That sounds wise. And that's something that I think everybody needs to take heed of is the idea of being able to surround ourselves with other people, people that can help, people that know what we don't. That's right. And, you know, one of the questions I, I tend to ask operators, uh, because this becomes a bigger issue all the time, is that for purely independents, um, they, they're in this for a certain amount of passion, and part of that is what they can provide for the community. And, you know, you talk to people, and they have certain causes that are really important to them, and they want to use their business maybe to forward those causes, whether it's sustainability or health or, or uh, developing a community. Are there any, you know, things like that for you that, that you um, – that are near and dear to you that you try to use your position as a successful operator to advance? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, health initiatives are near and dear to my heart. I mean, without health, um, you know, you, you, you can't provide for your family. Um, and um, without it, you damn sure can't work. So um, we, we gear towards that and, and military as well. Um, you know, we're, we're Susan J. Komen. We're doing a big fun run. We got all the locations. We're putting a team together. We're raising money for that. Mm -hmm. um, we do the St. Jude's deal um, <clears throat> consistently, and um, every year we do a big, uh, a, a huge donation for uh, fallen fallen warriors out in Kingwood. Um, that we do a big golf tournament for them, and we go out there and we feed and we have a great time. And it's just a really cool deal. And you know, they'll raise. Eighty, hundred thousand dollars in this one day, and we're, wow. we're kind of one. We're the main food sponsor that you know, feeds all these people. So we love to get out there and, and mix it up in the community. I mean, um, it's one of our. It's one. Of, it's part of our culture. Is being a good citizen um, critical in your mind to being a successful um, business? Yes, I, absolutely. I think so. I think so too. No, I do. I, I, I'm so happy to hear that. That's part of your culture. It's part of your everyday plan because I do. I think it works for your benefit as well. Customers, I think, like doing business with people they like. Yep, that's right. So how are you um, continuing to educate yourself? Although, frankly, with the level of success you have, you seem to be on the top of your game. Are there things that you do to advance your knowledge of the areas that you feel like, gee, I, I'm just going to, yeah. I want to get a little bit better at this. Uh, you know, what kind of things do you do to, uh, I guess, you know, uh, you know, raise the bar on, on, on your abilities? Yeah, I, you know, two, I think two big things, but one um, is being my own worst critic um, when it comes to uh, anything surrounding our culture and quality. Um, so constantly, you know, every day, just punching holes on, on what we're not doing right. Um, and then, and then two is, is reaching out and, and to folks that are smarter than me and have more experience than me in this industry mm -hmm. and meeting with them over coffee, um, you know, doing lunch with them. Um, I mean, last uh, two weeks ago, I met with uh, Doug Brooks. He was the, um, CEO, he's chairman of the board of Brinker mm -hmm. and, um, Man, I mean, it was like the best hour and a half that I've had of just getting a sounding board from this guy that's just, I mean, they're open over 100 locations a year for five years. Um, and so you sit down and, and, and you talk to folks like that. Um, fortunately, I had an in because of University of Houston. Mm -hmm. um, and so we kind of had this connection of U, U of H together. And you talk to people like that, and it just really puts things in perspective, you know. Um, 
and and uh, you know you walk away feeling motivated. So for new operators, um, you, you have, if you were going to advise them, do you find, uh, even though these are people who may be quote-unquote competitors, you find a fair amount of collegiality in the industry and people willing to share their their ideas and expertise? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think people are a lot more open than you than you realize, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it's a close-knit group, you know. I mean, the, the restaurant community here in Houston, it's, uh, most of us know each other, you know, and we don't mind sharing information. I just think that's one of the many wonderful things about the independent restaurant operator. Mm -hmm. yeah. there is, there's, a, there's a certain respect mm -hmm. uh, for one another. Uh, so there is a willingness to discuss things openly, share recommendations, help each other if they can. And um, so, I mean, that helps in a couple of different ways. Uh, it helps us uh, to continue to improve because we learn from each other. So I'm, I'm glad you're doing that, and and, uh, um, and, and I'm glad that you know you agree because I'm not sure if other industries participate like that. Mm -hmm. But the restaurant business is a very talkative business, yeah. and and it's nice to know that people are genuinely concerned with helping each other. I always like to say I think it's because there uh, there's a certain respect for one another. So we're going to ask how to help each other. Uh, no one's really going to ask something as silly as, can you please give me the recipe for this because I like it and I want to do it. Right. You know, no one's going to say, what was your cash flow like last month? But uh, I mean, that those are going to be the turnoffs. But if the listeners are out there know that they're wanting to enter this business, it would be good for them to know that they should start talking to operators. Have a cup of coffee with the restaurant that you go to most often. Um, and the people will share do's and don'ts. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, it's important because, uh, you know, particularly starting out, you can feel pretty lonely. I mean, you're an independent restaurant among the sea of competitors, and it's just you and your staff and, uh, uh, you know, not realizing you're maybe part of a larger community. So kind of wrapping up here, what would be a couple of tidbits that you'd want to tell the listeners today, things that, you know, you either uh, knew going in, learned the hard way, but they should definitely need to make note of if they're ready to jump in and start uh, this uh, journey called the restaurant business? Uh, never, ever, ever underestimate the power of a good manager. Um, it will be my first one because that's what uh, makes this restaurant bearable for us uh, small independent owners. Um, you can't, you can't do it all, and uh, there's nothing like the value of a really qualified, good manager. Um, don't get too far ahead of yourself with training initiatives because things are going to change, especially if you're a startup. Invest in management. Start there. Let the chips fall before you start trying to implement too much training too soon. Um, I've made that. I mean, you, yeah, you got to cover your bases and stuff. But the fact of the matter is, when you're young, you're starting out. Most of the time, you're making a lot of changes. And when you start making a lot of changes, it means you got to start making a lot of changes on the administrative side. When you're doing too much administration, it means you're out of the store. And if you're as young, if you're a young restaurateur that's getting into business, you just got to be in the store. Hey, Brooks, we really appreciate you taking time from your busy schedule, you know, operating 10 units and raising a family. Uh, we know that your time is uh, very precious, but uh, we really appreciate your insights and, uh, and uh, advice for, to our readers. So thank you so much for joining us in the corner booth. This is Chris Tripoli and Barry Schuster saying thanks, and we hope to see you really soon right here at the Corner Booth. Until then, hey, you operators out there, go make it a good shift.